How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. How can the San Francisco Bay Area meet its needs for more housing located near jobs while also reducing greenhouse gases? Many experts agree the answer is communities built near public transit and with vital services within walking distance from homes. That's the easy part. The hard part is agreeing exactly where such transit-oriented development should be built. NIMBYism is alive and well. Today we'll discuss one of the largest proposed housing developments in the Bay Area and how that fits or doesn't fit into a future that scientists say will probably involve freak weather, rising seas, and other unpredictable climate-driven uncertainty. The Salt Works project in Redwood City would add 12,000 new housing units on salt ponds on the edge of San Francisco Bay. Is that a model for future land development or a throwback to days of filling in the bay? I'm Greg Dalton, host of Climate One, and for the next hour we'll discuss Salt Works with our audience at the Commonwealth Club and three experts. Peter Calthorpe is a planner, author, and architect involved in SaltWorks. David Lewis is executive director of Save the Bay, an environmental organization opposed to SaltWorks. And Jack Matthews is used to being in the middle, so we put him in the middle um, in case things get a little Jerry Springer on us here. Um, we uh, is mayor of San Mateo, and we're going to talk beyond SaltWorks about some other uh, project uh, development projects in the Bay Area that have been successful in overcoming NIMBYism and, and local opposition. So, gentlemen, thank you for coming to Climate One. Thank you. Thank Give you. them a warm welcome. <laughs> yeah. uh, Peter Carrollthorpe, let's begin with you. Briefly describe uh, what SaltWorks is and, and why it should be built. Well, what it is is a mixed-use uh, project that takes a site... Um, well, for, let me describe the context, because I think it's very important people understand. We'll keep this brief, and then we'll get to the other. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. It's a site on the bay, which has been um, salt pond. Actually, it's pickle ponds and crystallizer, which are the advanced stages of salt uh, production, for almost 100 years. So there's no natural ecology in this site, and it hasn't been, that, it hasn't been there for a very, very long time. It's surrounded on three sides by development. As a matter of fact, it's adjacent to 27,000 jobs. Outboard of it on the bay side is Pacific Shores, which is 6,000 jobs. Uh, directly inland of it is um, uh, the, the Stanford Medical Center extension, another 5,000 jobs. And it's within a mile and a half of downtown Redwood City and the Caltrain station. So that's the larger context. It's just right in the middle of the peninsula where there's 300,000 jobs. So You would add 12,000 uh, 12, new homes. And some jobs as well. Now, the site is not all development. Of the 1,436 acres, around 600 acres, largely on the crystallizer, which is the most damaged and you know, demanding of the pond configurations, would be the development. And the remaining 850, close to 850 acres, would be open space, of which a free um, bay restorations project for around 473 acres, a big crescent park to allow access to the bay, um, schools, parks, 
uh, wetlands uh, restoration, a whole range of things. Bay Trail of about, um, uh, what is the Bay Trail length there? Uh, 2.7 miles of new Bay Trail. As a order of magnitude, Chrissy Field is 1.7 miles. So this is almost, uh, you know, twice what Chrissy Field would represent as an opportunity to get have people move towards the bay. So some housing, some open space, some restoration. David Lewis, why is this a bad idea? Well, this is not a site for housing. These salt ponds used to be part of San Francisco Bay. They actually do still provide some habitat value now, and they're a priority area for restoration, and they're also a priority area for continuing as open space. So we used to have uh, 200,000 acres of tidal marsh and wetlands around the bay, and starting with the gold rush, many of those were developed, diked off for salt ponds and for hay fields, and then many of those were developed. A lot of the infrastructure that we have around the edge of the bay is actually on filled land. And by the 1960s, when Save the Bay was founded, more than a third of San Francisco Bay's open water was gone from that development. And there were plans to fill in 60% of what was left. Really, the first citizens' movement to protect a bay and estuary happened here and was very successful. And so we pretty much stopped filling in the bay and stopped filling in the shoreline and decided that we were going to try to restore the bay. Many of the salt ponds that used to be operated for making salt are now back in public ownership and in the process of being restored. This one area in Redwood City was held onto by the Cargill Salt Company because they wanted to develop it. They have no entitlement to develop it. The city's general plan says it should remain as open space. It's a priority area for acquisition by the Federal Wildlife Refuge. And as we'll get to later on, there are a lot of other reasons that it's a very challenged site, not a smart growth site, not a transit-oriented development site. So uh, our priority and the city's priority is to keep this as open space, to do more development, create more housing, and more places for jobs and employers close to Caltrain, close to transit, and not on the wrong side of uh, the freeway where it will create more traffic, and not in the bay. You know, one of the reasons that we have such a great quality of life and a very strong economy here in the Bay Area, uh, even in the midst of a recession in the rest of the country, is that we made smart choices about how to develop and smart choices about what to preserve as open space. We've also made some very not smart choices about where we've developed also. Let's, let's, uh, let's get Jack Matthews in here. You don't really, uh, you're not directly involved in salt works, but you're a near, nearby neighbor and, and mayor. How do you view this proposed development? Is this the direction that the Bay Area should be going to provide housing and protect its natural heritage? Well, I do have some concerns about it. Some cities have actually voted to, make, uh, to oppose the project. We have not done that in San Mateo. We believe that the people of Redwood City should really, they're the ones that uh, are most impacted by it, and they're the ones that have jurisdiction in this case. They're the ones that should vote on it and decide whether or not it's appropriate. Uh, during the EIR process, though, environment, and that's the environmental, environmental impact, impact report. reports process, we will certainly be commenting and requesting information about impacts that might affect the city of San Mateo and, you know, the, the, the region, which would be some of some concern. So we agree, I think, you all would agree that there needs to be transit-oriented development near jobs, near housing, but this is just isn't the place to, to do it. Peter Calthorpe, really? Well, you know, I would disagree with you about that. Which part? That this isn't the place to do okay, it. Okay, that's I what mean, you, again, I, sure. Obviously, look, 
the larger context is that for a very long time, we've been building more jobs than housing, particularly in the west side of the bay, particularly in Silicon Valley and the peninsula. And the jobs housing balance has been so askew that we, that we have people commuting from outside the the, uh, the nine-county Bay Area. From hours from Tracy. From, we've yeah. been pushing housing way, way to the periphery. Um, San Mateo County has 160,000 people in commuting, and Redwood City has around 40,000. Now, I've been an advocate for transit-oriented development. As a matter of fact, I was one of the people who coined the phrase. Um, but I think we need an expanding transit network in order to begin to get to the jobs housing balance. And this project is dedicating three miles of transit right-of-way and preliminary shuttle buses that will transition into a light rail system that connects to um, uh, Caltrain when the city builds its piece along along um, its inter- internal roads. So it will be TOD in the, much the same way that Brooklyn was built as a a development that actually paid for its own transit service. Outboard of the site is a potential ferry terminal. So all of a sudden, we have a chance through this site to connect the dots between ferry, Caltrain, and, of course, the opportunity for high-speed rail. But there's nothing there right now. So all the services, schools, groceries, et cetera, would need to be there, or else people are going to be driving a lot of distance. Well, this is a really good point. And let's look at the whole county. The new ABAG plan... Association, Association of Bay Area Governments, um, says that the county, and they've down, they pushed down these numbers because the job numbers are going down because we're in this recession. But they still project around 72,000 housing units needed. Now, I'm all for infill along El Camino and along the existing Caltrain. I mean, that's priority number one. As a matter of fact, that was one, the, one of the designers for the Bay Meadows first phase. Um, and I've done a lot of that kind of work. The problem is it's not going to be enough. It's not nearly going to be enough to get to that place. And the housing that can't land there, and quite frankly, the numbers are startling. Um, Greenbelt Alliance, who's a big advocate for infill, did a study called Grossmark Bay Area. And they, had, they, they achieved along that quarter around 38,000 units of housing. Best case scenario. And that's actually what ABAG is projecting, 38,000. The target now is 72,000 if we want to get anywhere near a jobs housing balance, if we want people to stop the long commutes from across the bay, and we want to stop pushing people out into farmlands and, and, and virgin ecologies. Okay, so there's that big increment. Um, Save the Bay also said, well, beyond that quarter, there's another 24,000 units of capacity. That's up to 58,000. We're still shy. So as much as I would love to see it all happen on El Camino, and I've been a big advocate for all this kind of development for a long time, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. you were on the planning uh, commission when I worked uh, on that infill site. It's, it's a both-and approach. But the key point here is if we're going to get to that jobs housing balance, you have to balance the new housing with schools and parks. And to get to that 72,000 target, you need about 1,000 acres for new schools and um, and new parklands. And you Matthews, can't get that with small lot infill redevelopment. Jack Matthews, you're a planner by you know um, by trade. How do you view the density and whether whether Salt Works will be able to have the critical mass as a community to have everything there so people don't have, end up driving in and out for to the dry cleaners, et cetera? Just to be clear, I'm an architect. Okay. Um, and I served on the planning commission for eight years. 
and had the opportunity to review uh, the first redevelopment project for Bay Meadows. In terms of the, the, the planning process here, I think we need to make it, allow it to work. And uh, I want to be just clear when you were saying earlier, we're all in agreement. I'm, I'm, not in, I'm not saying I'm against the Salt Works project at all. I'm saying it's too early to, to form an opinion. We need to get more information and get the, you know, have the ER completed. What are the significant impacts? What are the un- unmitigatable impacts? And how do we, you know, what do we do about those? So that's really my concern. And but do you think, what is the, the uh, sort of mass of housing, the, the size of scale that a, a community needs to support a supermarket, to support the kind of infrastructure uh, that a community needs to be sort of self-sustaining? Because we talked earlier and you said that it's a little bit of an island out there right now. It's, it's a little well, bit, Salt Works is a little bit isolated and it's not connected to any other community because it's on the edge of the bay. It does seem to be isolated to me. Um, but as I understand it, they are proposing... Uh, a lot of the facilities you would have in a small neighborhood community, that is schools, parks, uh, convenience retail, and that sort of thing. There may not be a supermarket. There may not be uh, a large employer there and that sort of thing. And it is a challenge uh, to, while you might be successful in creating the housing for people who would work in a sort of a regional basis, it's hard to create the the sort of uses on site that people would take advantage of, for instance, where they would actually live and work within easy walking distance. I, I don't see that happening as much as we'd like to see it happen. I, I'll we'll fill get, in We'll get David in a second. Peter, quickly. Yeah. Um, 12,000 units is enough for a grocery store. And when the they're thing, all built, but it'll take some time to build you that you out. Have right? to phase it. You have to phase it, and you need to advance phase it. But all of our work, even at Bay Meadows, we were able to build with only 750 units. Now they're contributing areas, a robust local shopping area that people could walk to. And so my design philosophy is you always design in walk sheds, and you create all the local destinations. But you're correct. Not everybody lives and works in the same place, but when the numbers are so large, 30,000 jobs within a half mile of this site and a a one and a half mile shuttle over to Caltrain's, you have lots of opportunities to get to work without using a car. This is a prime site in that regard. David Lewis? If we want to encourage the right kind of development that actually uh, creates working communities, allows people to get to work without using cars, preserves open space and amenities, doesn't put people at risk from natural hazards like flooding, the sea level rising. If we want to encourage the right kind of development, we have to discourage the wrong kind of development. One of the reasons that we have people driving long distances is because our land use policies didn't discourage kind of sprawl that ate up farmlands and open space a long way from where the jobs were. One of the reasons that we still have some of the bay that we do is that we made it very difficult and in most cases illegal to fill in more of the bay when we woke up to the fact that we were killing the bay less than 50 years ago. So there are communities like San Mateo and like Redwood City that are really trying to focus on doing the right thing, developing downtown. They've they've made their general plans reflect those priorities. They've made their energies of their city councils and their business communities reflect those priorities, go out and recruit people to come in and develop in those downtown areas that are close to Caltrain stations. It's a, it's a mistake to take the pressure off. 
And I just want to come back to this site and why it's the wrong site for housing. That's not, not, that's not just a local opinion. Peter likes to suggest, and, and there's an element of truth to this, that many communities uh, uh, practice this uh, not-in-my-backyard attitude, right? And they don't want things in their own community to change. And that's something that we have to overcome. But we don't overcome it by allowing the wrong kind of development to happen. And this site is not only the wrong site for housing because it is uh, potential for uh, being restored to wetlands. It's also at sea level. It's not surrounded on three sides by development. On one side is the Port of Redwood City, the last industrial use in the South Bay. Not a good place to put houses next door. On two sides, it's actually connected and connectable to the bay. There's a potential for a wildlife corridor there that's very important. So we can go through the litany of reasons why this is not a good site for housing, but I just want to underscore, right now it's not a legal site for housing. It's not designated that way in the general plan. The owner has no entitlement or expectation to build housing there. It's designated as open space. And the state and the federal government both recognize that these salt ponds are still waters of the United States, and that legally makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to develop there. So the energy that's going into promoting this, which is coming from the developer and the landowner, which stand to make a lot of money if they can convince all these entities to change their mind, that's where the energy is coming from. It's not coming from uh, the residents of the area. It's not coming from the cities in the area. And, uh, in fact, it's mobilized regional opposition, regional opposition to this plan in this place. David Lewis is executive director of Save the Bay. We also have Peter Calthorpe, planner and architect. Peter Calthorpe? Well, David, the reality is that we're all for infill along Caltrain's in, on El Camino and, and um, uh, at, at Caltrain stations in downtown. There's no question about that. But the problem is it only gets us halfway there. Where do you put the other half? Do you just say, I'm blind to this problem. We're going to let it go out to Solano, to North uh, Livermore, out to Tracy, down to Coyote Valley, which is what's been happening for too long. There's, a, there's another 30,000 units above and beyond what we can get into those downtown areas uh, that needs to find a place. Along with that, you need to find places for schools and parks and other facilities. Furthermore, we've got to find ways to pay for levee structures because with climate change, the bay is going to start uh, invading lots of existing developed areas. That's a very expensive proposition. We have to find ways of paying for more transit because one Caltrain line is not going to be enough to create the, the quantity of transit-oriented development we need. Um, we have to find ways to pay for those parks and schools. So why not take a site and take a six, 40% of the site and dedicate it to much-needed housing, get transit, get levees, get parks, uh, and then also get free wetland restoration on top of that? Why not do a little bit of everything. Why does it all have to be all or nothing? It doesn't have to be all or nothing. But developers love to pose false choices. So let me just tell you about two false choices that Peter and the advocates for this development are, are posing, which is, a, which is an, uh, an oft-heard refrain of developers. The first is that if we don't build in the bay, if we don't build on these salt ponds, uh, then we're not going to have enough room for anything. We're not going to have enough room for people. We're not going to have enough room for businesses. That's what developers said all during the 60s in opposition to the effort to protect more of the Bay. 
And what happened? We have a thriving economy. We have one of the most desirable places in the world that people want to come live. So that's a false choice. It's also very expensive, partly yeah. because there's not enough housing nearby, right? It is very expensive. And, but that doesn't the mean... The most expensive. That doesn't mean that you do the wrong thing. It's a false choice. The second false choice is that we have to destroy some of the bay in order to save it. We have it's to allow build, we have to allow building on these salt ponds that are identical to salt ponds that are right now being restored in uh, the Na- along the Napa River. Crystallizers, crusty hard white salt that developers love to say, "Oh, that's industrial. That's impermeable. We can't restore that." It's being restored, the identical type of site in Napa. So it's not necessary to destroy part of the bay in order to save it. Let me just tell you, the last time we heard this a decade ago, it was San Francisco International Airport. They wanted to build runways further into the bay. And they said, if you don't let us do that, you will never get the salt ponds in the South Bay owned and restored by public agencies. And guess what? The runway project was canceled. The salt ponds were acquired by the federal and state governments. They're being restored. 15,000 acres of Is there all the money there to do that restoration? That's the third false choice. Developers say that if you don't let us do it, we won't be able to raise the public funding. Now, every development proposed on the shoreline of the bay that has been stopped, that developer has become a willing seller, has allowed that property to be purchased for a fair market value. And just north of this site is a great example of that. Bear Island in Redwood City was proposed for development. It was even approved by the city council in Redwood City, overturned in the 80s by a referendum of the voters of Redwood City. And as a result, the developer decided he wasn't going to be allowed to develop there. He would sell the property. It was sold. The Packard Foundation gave a loan to the Peninsula Open Space Trust. It's now part of the Federal Wildlife Refuge. And the pride and joy of Redwood City, they protected this part of their shoreline and it's being restored to wetlands. That's exactly the model of what should happen at the Saltworks site. But you didn't answer my question, which was, if it's true... And I'm not doing this as a developer proposition. I'm somebody who did a regional plan for Portland. I've done regional plans for Los Angeles, Chicago. I understand these problems, and I understand the numbers. And unfortunately, you have to get in the weeds to really understand the challenge here. But there's not enough on El Camino. Where do you propose putting the rest? Or do you just want to put on blinders and say, it'll find a place? Well, the reality is, for the last 20 years, it hasn't found a place. It has gone sprawling. And we haven't built enough housing, and so people are commuting long distance. Huge environmental footprint. When you push housing farther and farther to the periphery, because you don't want to face up to the challenge in these core jobs-rich areas, the environmental footprint, carbon emissions, VMT, energy consumption, and land consumption, because we all know it's lower density once it gets out there, all of that on in many cases, either pristine habitat or uh, farmland, farmland, lots of things. Yeah. So my question, again, if you could answer the question rather than uh, divert, is where would you put the stuff that doesn't fit? Not in the Bay. We okay. do it on the land. We do it on the land with more dense development, with reconfiguring our cities the way many cities in the Bay Area are starting to plan to try to do. And if you take the pressure off, Peter, and say... This stuff along El Camino is too hard. It's not I'm enough. Not it's Let's take the pressure I'm off. I'm saying get Let's 100% the of that. Let's and take the pressure the off and develop into the bay. Then the high-priority sites do not get developed. It takes the attention away. It takes the pressure away. It takes the impetus away from doing the right kind of truly transit-oriented development. 
I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests today at Climate One are Peter Calthorpe, planner and architect, David Lewis, executive director of Save the Bay, and Jack Matthews, mayor of San Mateo. Uh, David Lewis, climate change is such an overwhelming problem that even some environmentalists would admit that some difficult trade-offs need to be made, that environmentalists are changing positions on some things, whether it's nuclear power, hey, we don't like it, but maybe we need to, to, to go there, uh, Environmental and health advocates are often against uh, dense development because of the, a, a lot of people living where there's a lot of exhaust, pollution, but they're saying, hey, we need to give and take here because climate change is going to wipe us out, and so we have to let go of some of our cherished, re- rethink our priorities and give a little more because this thing is so big. And so, well, you can say, well, we shouldn't build in the Bay, we should build in somewhere. There's going to be another environmental or health organization saying, no, you can't build here because there are people and there'll be health effects, et cetera. It's a or real there's bo- habitat. Well, one, Somewhere, one, right? one area where there's broad agreement is that in the fight against climate change, wetlands are like magic. Will Travis from the Bay Conservation and Development Commission has coined that phrase, or at least using it frequently. And, and the reason is we have to take uh, two approaches to the climate change challenge. Once we have, we have to work on mitigation to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that are being emitted and sequester more carbon. And secondly, we have to adapt to the climate change that is going to happen. We have to ad- adapt our shorelines. We have to adapt our habitats. And so wetlands help in that battle in two ways. They provide a natural protection for the shoreline. Where there are wetlands, levees behind those wetlands don't have to be built as high or as strong or as expensively because those wetlands help attenuate wave action that tends to erode and, and create flooding hazards. And secondly, wetlands sequester carbon. So the, the best thing we can do is get more of tidal marsh restoration in the bay started sooner so that it has a chance to keep up with sea level rise because wetlands can actually adjust their level if the sea level rise doesn't happen too quickly. So it's really, it's really the best thing we can do from both perspectives. And every place where we can do that, that we choose instead to cover up and pave, especially if it's the wrong place from, for other reasons, then, then we're losing that opportunity. But the reality... I have a moment. Jack Matthews. <laughs> uh, you said earlier that having infill development um, in cities is problematic because... Uh, the, the perhaps the neighborhoods and the and environmentalists would object to it, worry more about the intensity of development. What we found in San Mateo is really that environmentalists are are allies in doing that. That in fact, they, the Sierra Club in particular has come to support projects in San Mateo that are fairly good size for us. They've changed I mean, their tune. They've, they've changed their tune. They've come to the conclusion that supporting transit-oriented development is the right thing to do. Uh, development along transit corridors, encouraging people get to get out of their cars and to use bicycles and walk. And, and it's been very successful for us. In terms of infill development in San Mateo, on the books right now, we have about 4,000 units of housing that is con- contemplated and about 2,000 that's already been approved. So, you know, it's hard to do it in 12,000 unit increments, but it can be done over, you know, uh, in, in infill development if it's planned well. And the community will accept it. One of the things that I found in, in my role as the mayor is that there is a group of people within our community that views San Mateo as this nice little sleepy suburban town. It's really not. It's getting much more urbanized. 
And the key to be able to go forward with projects like infill that we've been doing is to make sure that the people understand that the single-family neighborhoods will be preserved, that we won't be encroaching on them, and that in the, on the long run, the quality of life in our community is going to improve. You've also done something which is basically some people in San Mateo have assessed themselves to uh, pay for the, the current and to adapt to future impacts of climate change. So how did that go down? Right. Well, um, one of the concerns, one of the arguments I think that's been made for the salt works is that it will help protect Redwood City from... Create revenue that, that, that will be used for... They'll build dikes and help protect mm-hmm. Redwood City. In San Mateo, what's happening is that the people who live in the areas that have been mapped by FEMA to be in the 100-year floodplain have decided to tax themselves. And, and so they voted for a bond measure, a 20, 20-year bond, that actually is the payments every year is cheaper than the the flood insurance that they would have to pay, which is something like $1,300 a year, but the, but the, the tax that they're paying is something like $200 a year. So just so, a little bit of background here. The Federal Emergency Management Agency mm-hmm. has said the bay will get larger, more areas will be vulnerable to uh, seawater intrusion, rising tides, and these people have said, well, they either have to buy flood insurance, federal flood insurance, or protect themselves by building levees and dikes, and they've chosen to do that. Well, they've chosen to do it, but it's not necessarily particularly in reaction to climate change. It's in reaction to the fact that there are areas of our city that are not, well, FEMA changed the standards, and they said that the levees had to be higher than they currently are. Right, and they did that probably because of climate change. (laughs) They might have, but we're not raising them, uh, you know, a meter and a half. but basically, we're protecting San Mateo and at the, in the same time, Foster City, which ironically would be uh, encroached on by floodwaters from from the east side, not from the bay, but from from back from San Mateo. So that work is almost done, actually. It's taken about three years and uh, $7 million worth of work. And Greg, I think as you highlighted at some previous sessions, you know, the state of California is trying to be at the forefront in planning for climate change, not just to try to mitigate the emission of greenhouse gases and sequester more, but in preparing communities to adapt. And one of the adaptations that's necessary is to adapt to sea level rise. And so under Governor Schwarzenegger, the state adopted a climate adaptation strategy. And on sea level rise, it says, really, try not to build and put more people at risk in areas that are vulnerable to sea level rise. But in those that aren't already built on, where we don't already have infrastructure, and especially those unbuilt areas that can be restored to tidal marsh that sequesters carbon and provides these other benefits, that's the worst place to build. So that's the state's overall strategy. It's going to start to be implemented, hopefully, through state agencies adopting it as actual regulations and guidance, but most importantly by cities as they redo their general plans and look at areas that are subject to flooding. City saying, yeah, we have an undeveloped area like these salt ponds that could be restored. It's open space. We should keep it that way, and we should restore it to tidal marsh. Peter Calthorpe? Well, you know, there is a fundamental inconvenient truth here, uh, and that term's been used in many contexts, and I, I just realize it really applies here, which is that nobody wants to address this fundamental problem that it doesn't fit as 100% infill. When we did the regional plan for Portland, which is now famous as the model of transit-oriented development and, and, and ecological preservation and all the rest of that, we ended up with 40% of the development not as infill. There just isn't the capacity there. 
and we're short by 50% on the peninsula. Even with your good work, and I think even assuming that there are no NIMBYs to oppose or push down any numbers. Footnote, Redwood City downtown plan is a great example of what should be happening. But it got pushed down from 3,700 units to 2,500 units in the last political go-round. So that kind of thing is inevitable. But even if that doesn't happen, the inconvenient truth is it doesn't fit. And we need to find really smart areas that we can connect transit to uh, and we can build as whole systems, i.e. complete neighborhoods with parks and schools and local services. That's the challenge. Now, David points out that, gee, we'd save more carbon by having a marsh. That's, that's completely erroneous. You get about one-hundredth the carbon sequestration that you could have over 600 acres if you compare the travel behavior of somebody living at that saltworks area in a transit-oriented development um, context like, say, Rockridge, not heavy urbanism of downtown San Francisco, but good walkable place with transit service, that's around six metric tons per household. If that housing ends up in North Livermore, it's 12 metric tons per household. So in terms of carbon, there's no comparison. We need to take part of the site, not all of the site, just part of the site, in order to begin to balance the peninsula. And nobody wants to face up to it because it's a difficult choice. It means that, you know, David's saving the bay. There's a foothills group saving the, 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 the foothills. There's another group down in Coyote Valley saying, we're going to preserve the ag land. There's... Um, whoever it was in Redwood City who said there's too many shadows being cast by your downtown plan um, and I'm going to take you to court. So there's always, no matter where you go, there is something. Uh, and certainly, if we didn't have this huge imbalance between jobs and housing, I wouldn't be an advocate for developing part of the SaltWorks. But because we do and because we have critical linkages that can be made, this project will actually build a new bridge over 101 for pedestrians, bikes, and transit, linking the community to the bay. This is a positive. It'll create a bayfront park so that people will have access to the bay. These are things that you're also after. It'll contribute 450-odd uh, uh, acres of wetlands restoration because we believe, just like David, that that's a good thing. But it doesn't have to be all one thing or another. And sooner or later... Everybody has got to sit down at a table and face the realities of where we need to be. Because the cost of housing um, and the cost of pushing development farther and farther to the periphery is just too much to bear. David Lewis, on that point about environmentalists are always going to be somewhere blocking something. There, you know, there's, you know, everywhere you turn, there's going to be someone against Even it. Even if they don't, we don't have enough, is my point. Okay. I've been misquoted on that too many times. Even if you got 100% of those sites... You still wouldn't. Well, why not achieve? add a couple of stories to the buildings in downtown San Mateo, <laughs> Jack Davis, and we'll, we're done with it. Well, um, one of I, I also serve on a, on a committee that's called the Grand Boulevard Initiative, and the Grand Boulevard is the El Camino Real. It's known as Mission Street in San uh, Daly City and Alameda in in Santa Clara, and we're looking at what's what is the appropriate use of that boulevard, and. As we look at it, it isn't all retail. Uh, you can't really create like a 40-mile-long retail strip mall. Strip mall. Uh, what you really want to have are nodes along the way where you have uh, uh, commercial uses, offices, and retail. And in between, you have housing. And it's 
way underutilized. Peter, I, I, I really can't address your numbers as far as, you know, what well, the capacity is. Well, unfortunately, that's the problem. But, but one of the things that I see uh, is that uh, in San Mateo, we have densities that we allow up to 50 units an acre, and, and with the state density bonus can get to 68 units an acre. That's fairly dense. I think it's dense enough, in fact, that if you implemented it along the El Camino Real and, and, and the space between it and, and uh, the, free, the, um, the train, the, tr- the railroad tracks, there's a huge amount of potential there for housing that's just incredibly underutilized. We have, along the El Camino and San Mateo, most of the buildings are one, one to two stories high. You know, and there, so there's a lot of potential there that's not being used. Yeah, and in San right. Francisco, which is perhaps an exception, but some of the densest neighborhoods have the highest property values. Exactly. Exactly. So, David? And, and I, I just want to underscore that, you know, this, uh, this battle over the salt works site, which is now stretched out for five or six years, uh, five or six years where the, the landowner and the developer have engaged in a massive PR campaign to try to promote this project for for obvious reasons. Uh, the more people learn about this project and the site, the more opposition there is. It's not an environmental group or save the bay against this developer. More oh, than you're, doing, you're doing a there are more than fair amount to, well, that's to stir that up. So. <laughs> I'll tell you something. It's a receptive audience because, because this isn't a local threat. This is a regional threat. The bay is a regional asset. And so when you have 150 or more local elected officials from all around the Bay Area, they're not NIMBYs. They don't live in Redwood City. They're not from just only San Mateo and Atherton. They're from St. Helena to, to Gilroy and Morgan Hill who are offended that this is even being proposed. And it's not just elected officials. And it's not just environmental groups. And it's not just labor unions and businesses. It's all of those. So this is... Uh, Becoming a fringe proposal, really. I mean, it should have been dead on arrival at the beginning because it's not the right place. And, and, and so I think that, uh, I'll, I'll go back to what I said before. You don't make the right kind of transit-oriented development that Peter's been a champion of. You don't make it more likely uh, and easier if you make it easier to build the wrong kind of development. Well, Peter, you said that some of your uh, followers of the new urbanism have drank a little too much of your coup on Kool-Aid. <laughs> what? No, we, well, remind me of my quote. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know you've been one. drinking too much of your Kool-Aid. No. Yeah. The, 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 um, the idea that the, the new urbanism, that, that that's not always the, the, the solution in every, in every instance, and that um, some of the advocates along the corridor and El Camino, et cetera, that that somehow is the only solution. Well, the problem with this discussion is that it does involve numbers and it does involve analysis. You know, and you, everybody wants to believe what's convenient for them to believe, and it's convenient for David to believe that we can just do it just fine along El Camino. And from your perspective, you guys are doing a great job. You know, why not just extrapolate that? Well, if you sit down and really do the numbers, it doesn't add up, and that's the. That's the sad truth. And for many people, it's very comfortable. They'll say, let's do 100% infill. And that's all we have to do in the whole Bay Area. Unfortunately, it's not the way it works And it's out. expensive to work in those small. Uh, developers uh, will I, say it's expensive to work well, in those small. Put, even putting that aside, let's say you got 100%. I, I, did, I rezoned University Avenue. It's a lot like El Camino. In the, Berkeley. In Berkeley. You know, two miles. Uh, El Camino in San Mateo County is 24 miles. So there's... Uh, you know, a 12 to 1 ratio there. 
over 10 years, and we did exactly what we all believe is the right thing, higher density, 50 units per acre, doesn't need all the retail, uh, let's take out everything. We preserved the existing multifamily because that's affordable housing, and we didn't touch single family because you get your hand slapped if you do that. Um, but we basically traded everything else out. We got 700 units over 10 years. If you extrapolate that experience over 30 years, over 24 miles, you get around 24,000 units along in the Grand Corridor, which is great. And Greenbelt says it's 38,000. That's great. It's still just halfway there. So I keep ha having to ask the question, and I, I know it makes my environmentalist friends uncomfortable, um, and it makes people who are advocates for in infill sometimes uncomfortable because I'm saying that's great, but it's not enough. Um, so, you know, these are the hard numbers. There's something profound that happened, which is SB 375, the new state law to reduce carbon emissions through land use, requires jobs housing balance for the first time. We haven't had it. We have the most expensive housing stock in the country. Um, many of the businesses, Silicon Valley um, Leadership Group, and all the rest of them say that their number one job creation issue is workforce housing that's well-located and affordable. Um, there's all these issues that pile in on this jobs housing balance issue. So we're just beginning to investigate it. For the first time, we have a legal structure to really address it in detail. We can talk about it in terms of slogans, you know, that we, you know, that we should do it all this way or do it all that way. In the end, it's going to have to be a mix, and we're going to have to be very smart. And my attitude is, I think this is a good site, but we should at least go through the EIR process, get all the facts on the table, and let everybody understand. And maybe we can clarify this question of how much is possible on El Camino, and then people can be really confronted with the question of, well, where else? And where are the parks? And where are the schools? There's a, there's a, there's a way to Jack determine... How many housing units are available on the El Camino Real? You can look at existing sure. zoning, but I think that's where you really run up against a brick wall because there's a lot of a lot of communities that won't allow more than 16 or 20 units an acre. Well, they should. And and so it's a political problem that that has to be solved along the the, the peninsula, along the El Camino to make that really happen. And then once once you go to a, a higher density, I really don't know where you, what you arrive at, but I, I suspect it's. It's better than what you were projecting. Well, no, not well, Jack's, me. I'm talking about Greenbelt Alliance, who was really projecting, op, you know, top-notch numbers. Mm -hmm. we're, we're discussing uh, land uh, development around the San Francisco Bay with Peter Calthorpe, the architect and planner, David Lewis from Save the Bay, and Jack Matthews, the mayor of San Mateo. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we're going to put our microphone out here and invite you to come um, join us in this conversation. Uh, and before we do, I want to ask Peter Calthorpe, Water is also an issue. We've been talking about salt water, but fresh water is also an issue here. And the head of the Santa Clara Valley Water District uh, said, well, first of all, we should say that the developers of this project had a deal where they got some water in Bakersfield, but now they got to get it to Redwood City, and there's some problem getting it from point A to point B. How's that going to be addressed? I don't have all the details on that, and once again, that's a matter that we should just be methodical about in an EIR process. I will say this, and once again, it, it always comes back to this core issue of the inconvenient truth. If those housing units end up in North Livermore and in Solano, the water consumption per household is three to four times higher. So, I mean, you know, the question is, we need water. How much? How much can we conserve it? And where is the best place to build housing that will reduce our water demand. 
But the, the couple of the counties between Bakersfield and Redwood City, Alameda and Santa Clara, said we're not going to be part of this water trading swapping and scheme. It, and if this project cannot get water delivered, it will not be built. There's no question about it. Let's have our audience question, please. Hi. I'm a Redwood City resident, and I've attended a number of the debates. Um, my question is about the numbers. Um, I heard GMB and you say that we want to stop the carbon from coming from the people driving from East Bay to create housing near the jobs so that the fire, the police, the others can come and live near the jobs. However, I understand you're building luxury homes. Only 15% of the property will be set aside for low-income housing, which has not been defined by DMB or you, but it won't be it won't be built either. It's going to be set aside for some other developer to come in and build. So how can these people afford the homes that you're planning on being built when we can't even afford reasonable prices in Redwood City? Because, as you said, it's the highest price in the country. Yeah. Well, the good news is the project doesn't have a single single family house in it. And, you know, the cost of housing goes with naturally with the type of housing. Uh, condominiums and apartments are the least expensive. Townhouses come in second, which are the mid-density, uh, and then single-family are the most expensive. So naturally, by basically designing a project where there are no single-family houses, where it's basically urban housing, apartments, condominiums, and townhouses, those are naturally much more affordable than the typical single-family. So, uh, you know, and that's what the market needs. I mean, to a certain Is there a degree, target price? I don't think so. I don't know it. I don't so really know. for a target price of yeah. what I'm... Well, I mean, the whole point is that you need a whole range of housing types. But this uncovers a very interesting another component, which is we can't satisfy all our housing needs with multifamily apartments and condos. Not everybody's going to live in a flat on El Camino. There's a huge pent-up demand. For townhouses, I like to believe, and I think the, the, the trend is there, that people will trade a large lot single family out in the periphery of the region and live in a townhouse more compact, more affordable, more energy efficient, if they get, as a bonus, that they're close to work and they can walk to schools and parks. Um, so I think that that's the trend, but the numbers I see are about 45% multifamily, 45% um, the demand numbers, 45% townhouse and about 10% single family. So we already got plenty of single family. We don't need that. But we do need higher density housing, and that's inherently more affordable. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, this question is for Mr. Matthews. My question is, <clears throat> when I drive around along El Camino, especially in the area near the airport, it actually looks quite run down. In several, I mean, all I'm talking about many areas between Daly City and the airport particularly, and further down even. And there are some blocks that look like they have successful businesses and people are going, but there are a number of blocks that look almost destitute. And I guess my question is, are there actually plans in the works now to recreate, whether it's multi-use, retail and condos above or, you know, I mean, are there actually things in the works or are you just talking about a philosophy? Well, Jeff we, Matthews? we approved the, our corridor plan in 19, excuse, excuse me, 2005 
It was 600 acres of land that we're talking about, south of where you're talking about. Um, and since then, we've seen uh, a development that was 68 units of low market rate, what we call workforce housing, rental housing, uh, immediately adjacent to the railroad tracks at, at, at Hillsdale near Borders Books. Uh, great project. Uh, there's been other developments that are in the works uh, as we move forward. Uh, you can see, for instance, in, in Millbrae, uh, adjacent to the BART station, there are plans to put in a hotel, restaurants, offices. There's uh, on, on the east side of the El Camino there, they put in a great number of, of uh, apartments and townhomes. There's, there's a great deal of pent-up demand, I think, and potential. But I, I think it's like, a lot like Peter says, it's going to be uh, more multifamily kind of housing, not, not a lot of single family. And, and we have an aging population who actually doesn't want to tend yards anymore, doesn't want to clean a big house, and wants to be within walking distance of a lot of the goods and services that we all expect. So I think there is going to be a trend to, to move into smaller uh, residences, to, to be in, in the city core and along the El Camino. I think it will happen. One thing area that's certainly happening is along Van Ness in San Francisco. We've seen a large increase. A lot of it's geared towards senior housing. There's been a lot of housing uh, added along Van Ness uh, in San Francisco. Perhaps that's a model that, that could be uh, replicated others uh, elsewhere, Jack Matthews, or is that too dense for well, San Mateo? I was talking a little bit earlier about, I mean, there there is a perception that has to be overcome, I think, within communities along the peninsula that um, well, we're, yes, we're, 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 we're not the big city, you know. Right. Um, but I think they're okay with a more intense development if it's along, if it's confined. If it's along the El Camino Real or it's in, in former, you know, industrial sites or whatever, infill sites like, uh, an old supermarket or, or, or department store area or racetrack or whatever, it's easier to do. Um, but I, I think it will happen. I think that there is a future there for that. Uh, David, I just want to, come back to something that Jack said right before we started with the questions and acknowledge the, how challenging it is to complete these projects uh, in some cases because they require people living in a community to change their view of their own community and to think ahead. Um, but two things about that. One, the Bay Area has a great history of being able to do that and communities to come together. And it doesn't help. It actually hurts if instead the energy is focused on projects that can't happen, that shouldn't happen, that divide instead of unite people. So what Jack and his colleagues in San Mateo managed to accomplish at Bay Meadows, uh, it should be celebrated. Same with the Redwood City downtown plan. And it wasn't easy, and it didn't happen as quickly, and it's not perfect, right? But those forces that came together, we can build on that kind of coalition, And if instead we go off in a different direction that challenges exactly what's made the Bay Area great and fantastic, but protecting our natural resources and restoring them, then I think it's harder to do the first half of of, uh, what Peter's laid out as as the challenging numbers, not easier. So if if those total numbers that the Greenbelt Alliance and ABAG and others have put out there are not enough, it's still progress. And if we don't make that progress, then the second half, the harder half, becomes even even harder. So I, I just encourage those communities that are trying to uh, remake themselves, 
uh, and those coalitions that have come together around that to keep trying to do that. Um, I think there are more success stories than failures and, uh, as, as we make more progress. And there's more, I think, awareness of the imperative of doing that because of climate change, uh, that we want to make our cities and our community livable and, and keep, uh, keep the Bay Area one of those places that where the economy thrives and the environment thrives. Peter Calthorpe, you agree? You were nodding your head to a lot of what David was saying. Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. You know, the reality of good, uh, great growth in the Bay Area, any region, is a both-and approach. Uh, You know, one size doesn't fit all, um, and one strategy is never going to be complete. And we know in this case Mm -hmm. that you're going to need both that infill and repair, and it will happen. And we've all worked hard to make that happen in many, many circumstances. And we're going to be more, we need to be more aggressive about the other stuff. We can't just say Solano and Contra Costa will take care of that. Um, you know, we don't need to think about it. I don't think it takes the pressure off uh, the downtown areas to have a salt works. There's another project, Balins, which is uh, just uh, south of San Francisco. Large piece of land, big project. The, the big projects complement the small projects. Saltworks will help pay for a light rail system that will extend mobility all the way from downtown Redwood City out to those jobs that are on the other side of 101 and potentially to the ferry terminal. So there's a lot of healthy synergy that needs to happen. Um, but I think the big issue over and over again is you can say that if you there's not enough attention to go around. There is enough attention to go around. Redwood City is doing both. They're doing their downtown plan, and they're methodically studying the trade-offs. Um, the danger is we get to this mode where we can't compromise, where we can't find synergies, where we can't basically think in a bo- both-and method. I mean, the site is a both-and. It's open space, it's wetlands, it's housing, it's transit, it's levees. It's all the things that need to be addressed. Um, why have it be just one thing when it can solve so many problems? Well, let's talk about Baylands, which I like because it reminds me of my, one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen songs. Which is the but, wrong name. Yeah. It, 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 uh, I, I don't but, think David would like that because you don't develop on Baylands. <laughs> but it's on the west side of 101, and I think, David, you're not really concerned about Baylands. It's, though maybe it's below sea level, which could be a problem. Well, I think the bigger challenges with the site are its toxic legacy. You know, it's right near the dump, uh, near Candlestick, yeah. south of Candlestick Park. It's also an area that used to be the bay, but now it's 10 and 12 and 15 feet high with landfill and garbage, where it used to be San Francisco's garbage, and it's still the waste transfer station. It's uh, the causeway where Highway 101 uh, connects uh, Oyster Point with Candlestick. That all used to be open water. So it has that, that history and that legacy, it but, it's a much, but it is a much more altered site. It's not a priority acquisition for the Federal Wildlife Refuge. And so... So you're okay very, with some building happening there? Well, People want to live on a former dump? They're, they're it's, just not, it's just not the same starting point. <laughs> it's not the same opportunity. Uh, I, I think that the city's going to have to look at addressing those, those toxic, that toxic legacy issue, and, and any developer would as well. But as, as far as large uh, tracts of land, other than the former military bases in Treasure Island, Alameda, and Hunter's Point, that's one of the few big chunks of land around the bay where 
uh, this kind of development could happen, yes? It, it, and it's not a restoration. Well, my point is it's not a Bay restoration opportunity. So if okay. you say the Bay's perspective, it's, it's different entirely, as are those military bases. Those are already developed, paved infrastructure. Do they need work? Certainly. Are some of them at sea level? Certainly. But they're developed, okay? So it's almost that threshold question about whether something can be smart growth. Is it transit-oriented? Is it already developed? And now that's a climate adaptation threshold question, too. Or is it undeveloped, restorable, restorable to wetlands like saltworks? There are very few, there are almost no other places left in the Bay Area that are undeveloped, that are restorable, that are not already protected for restoration. Well, this all works as the last one. 15,000 acres of uh, salt ponds that Cargill transferred uh, in 2002, which are waiting for restoration, and the price tag is about $1.5 billion to get that done. So there's a lot of inventory. So do that first before this. But how about the point of... of, I I would never say do one thing before the other. But It's uh, at the same time. But how about the idea that there's a lot of empty land, a treasure island for Alameda Naval Air Base and Hunter's Point uh, that ought to be built there before uh, building in the bay. And, of course, Cargill doesn't own those. So the Cargill well, first of all, let's be clear. This is a developed site. It's been harvesting salt for 100 years. And so it's, it hasn't seen the natural bay ecology for 100 years. There's no... Habitat. It's not it's as pristine there, as David Lewis would have I, I us believe. There's there is habitat. There's oh, bird use. Uh, right. Right. Well, we won't get into there are creatures there. Yeah. But there's no streets. There's no roads. There's no sewer. There's no electricity. There's no transit. Okay. None well, of why not build on the, on the naval base, the former military bases first? Because they've already been developed. and they're. they're I don't think this is a matter of... We need to consider, to get to where we need to be with jobs housing, we need to consider all of the above. Now, I, I was the designer for the Alameda Point. Uh, naval and the density we proposed, which was very low, not high enough for mine, only 4,500 units, was too high for the community. Alameda Island has a law saying no multifamily shall be built on our island. We are a single-family island, it's which a, is a code for well, it's a code for uh, no affordable housing and and, and things keeping like out that. undesirable yeah. people who aren't like us. But you know that's half the site. The other half of the site is runways. And I propose that those runways be turned back into baylands, as I actually did in 1983 at the Hamilton area where we uh, converted. So you did something that, that David Lewis would agree uh, with. would love. I mean, basically, <laughs> at, at he, he didn't just propose it. It's did, part of the National yeah. Wildlife Refuge now. David is saying if it's developed, it. don't touch it. We looked at the Hamilton old runway there, and we said that should be returned in what was called Marin Solar Village at the time, 1983. I am gray-bearded at this point. Um, and we proposed tearing up that runway and turning it to bay, and lo and behold, it has happened. In I fact, don't think we didn't the even threshold, have to tear it up. I, covered it. I don't think the threshold should be just, you know, what is, you know, if it's if it's already developed, don't, you know, don't touch it with balance. I think we have to be more thoughtful and precise about it. Now, the runways at Alameda, I think, also should be returned to the bay. Uh, but we can't because there's at least turn nesting. Uh, on the uh, on the runways, and that's an endangered species. So you have one environmental priority trumping another environmental priority. I think the larger good is return it to wetlands, but because we have the least turn there, we can't. David wouldn't support it. He wouldn't go after it. That's 800 acres. That's more land than we're arguing over in salt works. Um, so there's 
all these multiple layers of issues. Uh, Let's get David in on this. David, yeah. you know, we have something very specific, a particular bird, uh, endangered species, a broader goal. How does you as an environmentalist say, maybe we need to make some trade-offs sometime? Well, actually, the, the main, the most important thing was to protect that site from being developed, which the Navy was considering doing, the, the areas where least turner nesting. And now it's part of the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service owns the land, and they should plan what, which habitats to protect, which habitats to restore, what to change, if anything. So it's in the right hands. But that's their mission. <laughs> They're a resource protection agency. You know, that, that's not the Navy's job. Uh, that's not that's not what the Navy was trying to do. The Navy was trying to sell the property to a developer so that the Navy could make more money back. So that's not going to happen. That site has been protected. And, you know, I think there will be an appropriate process for figuring out what to restore and what not to restore on that site. But th- that's that's actually not what you were asking Peter about. You're asking Peter about you know, maximizing development opportunities on on already developed but underutilized lands. And one of the, the th- concerns about all those sites right now is the money's not there. Even if there was uh, approvals, the Board of Supervisors for San Francisco approved, I think, unanimously going ahead on Treasure Island. But the financing is soft right now for all these sites. So where's the money for for salt works? Is it there? Or is it too early? You know, I'm a designer. I'm not an economist. So I can't answer that in any great detail. We know, number one, that the housing need is extraordinary. And so there are market pressures, even in this downturn, uh, to move ahead. Um, but I, you know, what I'm trying to do is get people to focus on the big picture and say, how are we going to solve this larger issue of jobs, housing, balance, and get and reduce the number of people that have to commute across the bay? Let's put the zoning in place. Once you zone something for something, when it actually develops is a market force. So when you rezone pieces of El Camino, every parcel may not turn over instantly and start to construct. When we rezoned University Avenue, we rezoned the whole thing, and I'd say it's maybe halfway through its potential redevelopment uh, 12 years later. So you get the zoning in place, and then over time... The capital comes to make that happen. Jack Matthews? I, this jobs housing balance sounds good, and, and, and actually we have it in Cemetery. We have a job housing balance. The problem is that the jobs and the people don't, don't correspond to the same locations by a long shot. In fact, one of the things that we discovered was with our public employees, our, our let's say our uh, librarians and, and teachers and, and nurses and firefighters, we offer them low market rate housing. They can have first choice if they qualify by their income. And, and uh, generally speaking, they don't go for that because they can, for the same price, the same outlay, they can, instead of living in a condo, they can live in a single-family home with their own backyard and, 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 you know, in Pleasanton, maybe even with a swimming pool and a family room and three bedrooms and three baths, you know. So... People make choices. You can't really dictate how what those choices are going to be. You certainly want to make it so that you want to steer them in the direction of choices that we'd like them to make, but you never you can't really predict how they're how they're going to react, how they, what they're going to do. So people that live it in, in the Salt Works project, they might may, be driving they, to the East Bay to work. They 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 could be driving to San Francisco. They could be driving to Santa Clara. Right. We don't we don't know. Or they could be using. Transit. I mean, they could. I mean, the reality is, I think this is a really important point, which is the demographics are changing, and the marketplace 
you know, people can't afford that large lot single family. That, that's kind of a historic, that's a rear view mirror observation. Going forward, that idea of living farther out so that I can afford a large yard is diminishing. People now realize that the cost of commuting is a huge hit on their pocketbook, uh, as well as the cost of the mortgage. And so, what people need is the right trade-offs. You're not going to get somebody, a, fam- a large family who wants a single-family house to move into an apartment, but you can get them to move into a nice townhouse if there's a park nearby and they don't need that private yard. Depending on what so it costs. And the SaltWorks developers won't say what it's going to cost or estimate what it's going to cost, Peter. We have to announce. we have to wrap it up here. We've been discussing uh, salt works and beyond uh, land development around the San Francisco Bay with Peter Calthorpe, architect and planner, David Lewis, executive director of Save the Bay, and Jack Matthews, mayor of San Mateo. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.